You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Do you remember MySpace? Do you remember what the significant feature of MySpace was? Anybody? Top eight. Top eight. Your top eight friends. These were... Those were like my freshman year in high school days where I have so much regret, and one of the biggest ones was creating a MySpace. Um, but isn't it funny, thinking, I was thinking about this week of, of how in, in high school I was attempting to rate my friends on an internet site that no one would see. Um, and I started thinking about friendship. What comes to your mind when you think about Friendship. What comes to your mind when you think about friendship with Jesus? Our friendship with God rings hollow because our friendship in our world is relatively hollow. We've stretched the word friend, making it a broad and shallow term. So friend has become our title for nice people. Like if she is kind to me, if he is not my sworn enemy, then they are my friend. We mean well because we want to honor people with that title and we want to be friendly to everyone. But if friend means everyone, then of course we know that friend means nothing. Friendliness is not the same thing as friendship. And why in our world is loneliness the great epidemic of our lifetime? How do we get to a place that the CDC is calling being lonely one of the tragedies of the 21st century? There are two reasons. One is busyness. If we are too busy for friends, we know that probably inherently we are too busy. And when people ask us how we are doing and we respond with busy, what we are communicating is my life is actually too important for friends. And even if we're not busy, but it is perceived by others that we are busy, that too is problematic. I had a friend text me the other day that I had not spoken to in about 10 months. And he said, hey man, I didn't want to bother you because I realize you're really busy. What was I communicating? I don't have time for you. Secondly, I think technology, uh, our biggest barrier to deep and lasting friendship is tech because it does a couple of things. It depersonalizes communication. So we trade conversations and experiences together for mere details and updates. We are connected to more people more often than ever before. And our relationships have never been more superficial than they are now. It also disengages us from real communion. Uh, I had this strange experience while I was working at Macy's uh, where I stepped into the break room of about six people eating their lunch. Five of them were on their phone and one of them was just staring at her food. And the five of the people that were on their phone were texting other people on the other end of the line. And they were literally missing the person right in front of them who was just desperate to be engaged. Technology also disembodies relationship. Over the phone conversations pale in comparison to in-person dialogue. When I'm sitting with someone and I can hear their laugh or learn their quirks, I'm reminded that there is literally no substitute for this. I can't notice someone's expressions on the internet, but I can absolutely tell someone's mood by their personal presence. There is no digital equivalent to embodied relationship. And when I read the scriptures and when I see the life of Jesus, and when I witness firsthand the joy of deep, intimate friendship, 
I know there is nothing else in the world like it. It's the invitation God gives us, and it's the invitation to real life with real people. So we're talking through the three components of being a compelling disciple. Communion, community, and commission. And two weeks ago, we spoke about communion with God. Ultimately, God desires our presence and our pursuit of him. That is what he is after in the world. People that are intimately known, deeply pursued. But we have come to believe that in our day, it's possible to pursue Jesus without anyone else. It's possible to love Jesus and be highly disinterested in others who love Jesus. The journey of discipleship with Jesus is never a solo journey. And if it is, it ends up being more spiritual wellness than spiritual formation. Because spiritual wellness makes me feel something. And spiritual formation forms me into someone. Spiritual wellness has to do with me. Spiritual formation has to do with us. Compelling disciples show something of the Godhead that our move into deeper communion with Jesus is a move toward deeper intimacy with one another. So we're talking about community this week, but the word community is the header because it's easy to remember and because it's alliteration. I was a journalist, so it's an easy word to say. And remember, however, community isn't really in the Bible. Um, The family unit is in the Bible quite frequently. That metaphor is used very often. But honestly, what I want to talk about today and probably what we don't discuss in the church as much anymore is actually friends or friendship. The kingdom of God is a place where people of various backgrounds are welcomed in, where grace is given freely to anyone who would ask. But diverse backgrounds and unique personalities and each of our idiosyncrasies do not dilute this one basic truth. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. So I want to sketch a blueprint of friendship throughout the Bible. And then I would like to ask, what discipline do we see in the scripture that cultivates friendship in a world of loneliness? So in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the earth was teeming with human life, it was teeming with relational love. Job 38.4 says, when you, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. The pulsating sound emanating from the universe before the universe was created was not silence. It was joy. It was celebration. It was enthusiasm. The chorus after every verse, it is good, it is good, it is good. Stars singing, angels shouting, mountains clapping. The story of creation is not a bored clockmaker tinkering with his toys. It's more akin to a theater teacher celebrating on the first night of the play when she sees the choreography and the blocking and the music come together for the weekend production. Joy. And the centerpiece of that joy is found in the ultimate reality of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the deepest friendship to have ever been known. And out of love and out of joy, God creates. And when he fashioned the world, it was not because he needed to fill some relational void. He created out of love and because of love. And in the midst of his creation, he saw one thing that was not good. It was the record scratch in the song. 
While he created just Adam, there still existed a world void of relational love. Isn't it unique that before Satan crept into the world, before evil walked up the ground, before there was even sin, there was a problem. Solitude. God is love because God is triune. There was never a time when love was not because there was never a time when the Trinity was not. And to be made in God's image means that we, at the creaturely level, are intended for love. God made us both to enjoy him, but also to reflect him. And the beauty of the creation of Adam is that he reflects God's image. But the irony of the creation of Adam is that he cannot reflect God's beauty alone. Not because it's difficult without a helper, but because it's impossible without another. And yes, the scriptures tell the story of Adam and Eve as a marriage, and it is that. And what is marriage other than the deepest possible Friendship. Friendship is not a luxury in our world. It is a necessity. And we see that on the very first page of the Bible. And then sin enters and wreaks havoc on our relationships. At its surface level, sin is rebellion against God's good and loving authority. But at its root, it is the rejection of his friendship. Under the action of sin, lies a failure to trust the heart of Jesus for you? Jesus does not have good intentions for me, thus he cannot be trusted, and it doesn't matter what I do. So here's two helpful, I think, working definitions of sin. Sin, an attempt to meet my deep needs by my own resources. Sin, fulfilling my legitimate desires in illegitimate ways. What you need and what you want is unbelievably legitimate. God has no need, we have need. It's not your needs that are the issues. It's how we meet them that incur separation. And there are three implications of sin that we see in Genesis as it relates to friendship. Sin separates us. In the garden there was intimacy until there was breakdown. And the first thing they do is hide from God, but they also hide from one another. They put leaves over their bodies and they are confronted with the same story we inherited, which is a story of shame. Naked and unashamed has become covered and shamed. And what was once a place of emotional safety and complete security becomes a world wrecked by insecurity and in fact feels very dangerous. Sin separates. Sin also cools affection. So instead of love for the creator and the creature, the affection cools. It's now a game of deferring responsibility. Eve blames a serpent. Adam blames Eve and then blames God. And we have gone from a perfect world of side by side to an adversarial world of blame in minutes. Now each of us enter a world oriented away from true friendship. We have inherited the cooling affection from Adam. And then sin produces death. Obviously, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, and the consequences of trust that's broken is death. The payment for sin is death. It produced a spiritual death, which means we are now all born dead in sin, meaning that though we maintain as born into the world the image of God, it is marred, and we all share the same problem. We believe that we were born into the world to be God. Then it produced a physical death. There is no guarantee in life like death. No one is immune to it. 
And it also produces a relational death. The first recorded sin in the Scriptures after Adam and Eve are two brothers, one envious of the other, and out of spite, murders him. And then has the audacity to say to God, what? Am I my brother's keeper? And ever since then, we have suffered through the strained relationships that sin inevitably produces. But sin does not have the last word. In redemption, whenever I think of friendship with Jesus, I am utterly confronted with Jesus' love for Judas. In John 13, it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knows that the person who has followed him, walked with him, and a person to whom at some level he entrusted himself to, is about to bury him in the ground. And so as his final act, he does not call him out. He does not read him his rights. He does not undress him in front of the rest of the 11 disciples as an example of what not to do. He voluntarily bends down and performs the task of a slave. In the story, we call this redemption. And after Judas sells Jesus for $100, what happens? He says, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. He called him his friend. At the lowest point of his earthly existence, in that moment, he could have said a thousand things and done hundreds of things that would have been justified. Instead, he called the one who would betray him and wound him his friend. It is nearly impossible for me to conceive that. Some days I like to think of myself as Peter and John, part of the inner circle of Jesus' ministry that got the most intimate moments of his life. But honestly, most days I'm probably a lot more like Judas, doubtful that God can be anywhere, good, anywhere nearly as good as Jesus suggests, and tempted at times to sell out for a quick buck. And here comes Jesus saying, friend. He is so patient. He is so kind. Because the underscore of his entire life is the steady symphony of suffering love. It's not overpowering. It's not manipulating. It's not controlling. And it's not even dictating. It is just enduring. Jesus lovingly endures us. And Enduring suffering love is open to so much heartache, and yet there is no real alternative. In fact, C.S. Lewis paints the alternative this way. He says, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, 
motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will be unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Jesus is our substitute and our example, and it cost him his very life. We cannot pretend that if we were to take up the mantle of following Jesus, that it will be a costless journey regarding relationships. And the rub that pains us the most is always around relationships because relationships is actually where love gets involved. It is not an emotional feeling or a sentimental affection. It is proactive, enduring, sacrificial posture that counts others more significant than yourselves. And the way out, of course, is the way through. And then it's Revelation. This is what it says in Revelation 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings that were covered with eyes around inside and inside. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. The vision John gets of the throne is where angels and creatures of heaven are literally encircled around the throne, singing and praising. It's, it's communal love centered around the Trinity. Now, I want you to remember the circle piece because I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Have you ever considered that your life happens inside of a box. Like there are boxes everywhere. I had this realization the other day, so I just want you to humor me for a moment. We are obsessed with boxes. Our whole world is contained in boxes, and I'm going to use boxes and squares interchangeably. So today, you crawled out of a bed, which is a box, and you went to the closet or the dresser, both of which are box-shaped, and then you probably went into the restroom, which is another box. And then you hopped into your car, which is essentially a box. And you drove to your workplace, which is housed in a box. And you probably walked through doors that looked like a box. And some of you sit in a literal box. We call it a cubicle, but a cube is a box. And then you stare at a screen, which is, of course, a box. And you'll use your phone in your pocket, which is the shape of a box. And after you leave work, you might go to something to eat, and you go to a restaurant, which is a box. And the hostess will ask you, do you want a table or a booth? And you'll say, I want a box, because they're both boxes. And then after you're done with your food, you ask for a to-go. And you, and you go home to your box. And you put your to-go box 
in your refrigerator, which is your food box. And then the next evening you wake up and do the whole thing over and over again. And this time you come home from work and you're tired. And so you go to that food box and you grab that to-go box and you squirt up sit on that square shaped couch and you turn on a box. And you do this over and over again until you get married. And then you have a child in a hospital, which is a box. And then you take your child home, which you put them in a crib, which is, of course, the shape of a box. And the journey of you and everyone else, the rest of your life, is moving to enlarge your life in bigger and bigger boxes. Until you hit some type of peak in which you realize, I need to downsize my life and do smaller and smaller boxes. Until finally one day you die and they put you in a box in the ground. We are obsessed with boxes. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. Actually, it's not just coincidental that the American life can literally be described in one shape. For our purposes, the reasons are less important than the implications. What I just described to you is called ontological design. Meaning, yes, we form our spaces, but our spaces form us. We live in compartments, and compartments help us to separate our lives. They give us potentially an illusion of control. And did you notice that most everything I mentioned is man-made? Refrigerators, cribs, TVs, to-go boxes, phones, they are things that we have made. But what about the things that we have not made? What about the world? What about creation's blueprint? I just want you to take a look here. This is a wasp net casing on the left, on the right. This is a star, a glowing star. This is the tiniest of cells in your body. And this, of course, is stones next to a river. This is the eye. And that is the sun. This is a tree. That is the globe. You can do this on and on and on. Your literal ear. The brain. None of these reflect our machine of a world. They reflect the circle of communal love. It's called the Trinity. Rachel Ross in her book, Mandela Holmes, says this. The oldest form of indigenous shelter were always round in shape. Think of the Navajo Hogan, the Mongolian Yurt, North American Teepee, South African Kral, the Greek Tinamos, among others. Why did our ancestors choose to build round? Because the ovoid shape, eggs, earth, tree trunks, and stones, is what they saw reflected in the surrounding natural environment. So here is my point. Creation speaks. And it speaks something very profound. It's literally woven into the fabric of what we can literally see with our eyes. The beginning of the story starts with communal love, and it ends in a circle of communal love. And all throughout the Father's world, it speaks of a communal circular love. And his image bearers are the apex of that love, that shape, Jesus at the center, and we huddled around, which then this becomes our blueprint. Back on uh, Palm Sunday of this year, many of you entered into what we were calling a covenantal partnership. 
is your way of joining this community of people for the purposes of God receiving honor through your way of life and your way of moving in the world. In many ways, it is to combat the notion of I'm really into Jesus, but just not the church. And I get that sentiment that church can be one of life's most difficult places because it can be life's most wounding places. Church hurt is not a cheap tagline for a secular culture. For many people, it's a place that represents some very legitimate wounds and scars. The problem with I'm into Jesus, but not the church, is that it's not the sentiment of Jesus. The church is not plan B when plan A went sideways. Jesus has married himself to the church. It is the overwhelming metaphor of a bride and a groom in the scripture. It's not that Jesus puts up with the church or tolerates the church, but he loves the church so much so that even after all of her problems and all of her pains and all of her embarrassments, he has not left her 2,000 years later. So covenantal partnership is us agreeing together to embody the way of Jesus and stumbling forward. Keyword, stumbling. With copious amounts of grace at our disposal. And one of the ways we practice this is church around the table. So within the confines of a missional community, we eat a meal together. Taking the bread and the cup as living emblems of God's grace to meet us, fill us, send us out. So why this way of community? Well, communion is central to the life of the church. Jesus said this would be the way to remember who we are because we inevitably forget and to remind one another who we are because we inevitably forget. So all throughout church history, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, communion, the meal, mass, whatever you want to name it, it is to be received regularly because the experience of grace is both supernatural and ordinary. It's both spontaneous and it's rhythmic. It's the common spaces of our dinner tables where Jesus shows up in very profound ways. So communion is table-centric. Now, please don't hear me sliding other churches that practice communion differently. That is not my heart nor what I am communicating. But the Lord's table hits differently when you are taking communion with people, looking them in the eye after hearing their story of a really challenging week at work or a really monumental breakthrough at home. And it's a set-aside time in our week to remember that the kingdom has arrived, in part. And it's a moment to look forward to a kingdom arriving again, fully. The table is a circular endeavor because it's the place where our lives become integrated, not segmented. And it's a reminder that life is not so easily compartmentalized, but rather those who are in relationship with us, gather around us to pray, worship, laugh, toast, weep, and sing. Because God is remaking the world, he is remaking us. It's less boxes and it's more circles. Now if you've noticed, we have changed our model of MC. We are moving to a more neighborhood, geography-centered model. So why this change? If Jesus said, the world will know you, by your love for one another. To be honest with you, most of the world is not walking through those doors on a Sunday afternoon. But a lot of your worlds are around you. They are in your school system, they walk your streets, they're friends with your kids, they're in proximity to you. So what if we became a witness to our community that the kingdom of God has broken in on Pershing Street, on Fairmont Boulevard, on Fulton Drive, and it continues to break in? What if we hosted 
more game nights, grab drinks with more neighbors, and in some ways communally, not individually, but communally engage those around us. So it doesn't feel like you as an individual are on an island by yourself, but rather you are part of a family that is loving your shared community. Maybe one of the greatest apologetics we can give this part of our city at this time in history is the discipline of celebration. For most of us, I don't believe that joy and celebration is our natural response. I believe cynicism is. And that actually makes sense. There's a book entitled Winner Takes All. And the following responses tell us why cynicism is winning out. I have five stats here. I'll just give you two. American inventors create astonishing new ways to learn thanks to the power of the video and the internet. Many of them are free of charge, but the average 12th grader tests more poorly in reading today than in 1992. The tools for becoming an entrepreneur are more accessible than ever before for the student who wants to learn coding online or for the Uber driver. But the share of young people who own a business has fallen by two thirds since the 1980s. What goes through your mind when you hear those stats? What's the point is what goes through my mind. What is the point in showing up if our world keeps increasing its efficiency and decreasing its effectiveness? Whatever we're doing is weirdly not working. We are just going backwards. And that's just in our world, but there's also cynics of the church, right? We're cynical of those with too much joy. We literally tell people, you need, to, you need to calm down. I met someone years ago who was, I was so taken aback by their sheer amount of joy in following Jesus as, a, as my early terrible days of pastoring. I literally said, I think you need to have a more realistic vision of the world. And she said, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And now, five years in, I thought, no. I actually think she has tasted something that I have not. She has tasted a levity that, quite frankly, I have not. Why am I cynical about someone else's joy? Am I jealous? Do I want people to be more melancholy? Do I want people to be more apathetic? How do I fight the cynic within me? I believe the discipline to engage cynicism is celebration. It is feasting. Modern science gives us so much about the brain's elasticity and how it regulates moods. Our behaviors change when our behaviors are repeated. So we know this is true for things like pornography in the negative way, but did you know this works in the areas of feasting? Neurobiologists have shown that while the majority of the brain's development stops during childhood, there is one location in the right orbital prefrontal cortex that has the ability to grow throughout your life. It is literally called the joy center. It is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, which is your food, your sexual impulses, terror, and rage. Without a sufficient joy center, we spend our lives trying to fill the deficit. This is what John Tyson says. The practice of celebration strengthens this part of our brains. Unlike hedonism, which requires increasing amounts of pleasure for decreasing reward, celebration strengthens the joy center, which transforms our entire outlook. We need to be known for more than creedal adherence, service of the poor, and convictions about biblical ethics. We need to be known as those who know how to celebrate. 
those with instincts of joy who seize the moment and mark redemption, who order desserts, raise high glasses, create space for sharing the work of God, and root it all in His goodness. The more we practice the discipline of celebration, the more it will become our instinct. So instead of passing over moments of grace and redemption, we will mark them and hope and love will seep into our cynical world. I think even our most cynical friends would be drawn to a faith like that. Celebration is God's default. If you can dare to believe it, God is in a good mood. In the new city, there will no longer be fasting, but there will be feasting. And there will no longer be confession, but there will still be laughter. And there will no longer be sorrow, but there will still be joy. As King Jesus entered the world, the words ring out, I bring you good news of great joy. The response to grace and redemption is not apathy, it's celebration. We have a very poor theology of feasting. Eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. Eat, drink, and laugh, for a new city is coming. The reason a mother can endure the painful bursts of childbearing is because of the joy of motherhood. The reason young couples endure, the, endure through the first years of adjustment is because the value of insurance of a long life together. Parents hold steady through the teen years, knowing and praying their children will emerge at the other end human once again. Joy produces energy. In ancient Israel, every seventh day is a day of rest and celebration. Every seventh year is a year of rest and celebration. Every 50th year was a year of jubilee, a time of ultimate rest and celebration where people had, who had come into bond servants were set free and given back the land that they previously gave up because of a debt that was owed. The word rested in Genesis 2 is the word Shabbat in Hebrew. It's where we get the word Sabbath, which essentially means to stop or to cease, but it can also be translated to celebrate. Wired into the seven-day week is a day marked off for delight. Here's why this is important for us. Instead of merely passing over moments of grace and mercy in our individual lives, what if we marked them? There is so much marking of grace and redemption in the Scripture. And when we hear and see and experience what God is doing among us, our temptation is to say, wow, that's amazing, and move on. Instead of saying, wow, that's amazing, let's throw a party. The goodness of God has not left us. I'll be honest, I typically lead out of reverence, more than I lead out of joy. And I don't necessarily like that about myself. But what I am learning is that reverence and joy are not rivals, but they are two arms of the same body. We need both. We need a holy silence and we need a holy laughter. We need friends who weep with us and we need friends who laugh with us. I would argue in our world, it is probably easier to weep with someone than it is to rejoice with them. Because rejoicing with someone particularly when something profound or monumental has happened in their life, if we are not careful, can actually cause us to grow bitter. Like, why is that not happening for me? I don't want to revel in their success. I want my success. The call is to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. So whether it be the Lord's Supper or a Friday night competition of code names, 
Our greatest apologetic is not argumentation. It is celebration. Why break out the nicest steaks and the finest wine? Because we know the story of the prodigal son. We have returned to the father's house. He spread the table. We do likewise. Why laugh the loudest at the dumbest jokes that none of you did, by the way? Because we know that laughter actually has the last word. To laugh in the face of ridiculousness is reminding ourselves that God is full of joy. Why break out in spontaneous song? Because we were meant to join the stars in doing what we were created to do, which is to sing. And why do it with our friends? Because God is Trinity. He is perfect relationship, and Jesus has called us his friends now and forever. When, we, when he invited us to follow him, he invited us into the heart of God. And living in our world, we get to experience him amidst who we call friends. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, would you give us a renewed vision for life in your kingdom? Well, we are not merely acquaintances, but we have a few people who are close to us who we deeply call friends, who we break bread with, and we toast with, and we laugh with, and we pray with, and we confront, and we comfort and we love and are loved by and are confronted by and are comforted by. This is a vision of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 